Can you hear me okay? Do those? All right. Um, hopefully this will be a little bit better than yesterday uh, and our neighbors. So uh, I brought with me uh, a few items that might help um, if you're interested. And again, these aren't the only books that were written on these subjects, but um, there's some books that I had. Um, one is called The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. Basically, you'll get four different authors that will give their view, and then the other three author authors will critique that particular view, and you'll get into premillennialism, uh, pre amillennialism. You'll get into all those. So there's one. Um, uh, is edited by Robert Klaus. Um, Another book, uh, Three Views on the Rapture. Uh, there's actually a book out now that's the Four Views on the Rapture because they include the pre-wrath uh, idea, but this was one. Same thing, authors that give their side and then the others critique it. Um, and I usually recommend these because you get a wide variety or you get a, the, the broad spectrum and you can hear what other authors use to defend themselves. Uh, this was one I, I read several years ago called Ready to Rebuild um, by Thomas Ice and Randall Price. It's actually the entire book on the temple. And many believe that the one of the primary signs that Christ's return is imminent or close is when the Jews are allowed to rebuild the temple. Right now, they can't. Um, and so when that day comes, and actually that book claims that they are ready to rebuild the temple in three days. They have everything ready and just set. Yeah, Many of the sacrificial animals are actually being bred here in the U.S. Yes, and uh, everything. It's just amazing uh, that they're ready to do that. Um, all they're basically doing is waiting for this, some sort of agreement or permission to build on the Temple Mount. Right now, the Arabs have control of the Temple Mount, which is the Dome of the Rock. Um, another one. Uh, one of my favorites called The Feasts of the Lord uh, by Kevin Howard and Marvin Rosenthal. Uh, if you've never read Leviticus 23, obviously probably many of you skipped over Leviticus 23 because that's just an awful book to have to read through. However, it's powerful. Um, the feast days of the Old Testament, this individual actually walks through each of the feast days and what they meant in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and some of them yet to happen. How God had developed the feast days to point to future events. Um, great book. Uh, again, this one, however, will be, uh, will be a book that will probably target more of a pre-wrath rapture of the church. Um, so if, you're, if you lean more on the pre-trib side, uh, that one is not going to give you probably the information that you want. If you're post-trib or mid-trib, um, yeah, it's going to be more pre-wrath. Our, our ladies' Bible study did the Leviticus 23. The feast days? Yes. Yeah, it's a tremendous study. Oh, yeah, it is. It's and, very interesting. Oh, yeah, and especially out of Jewish eyes and an individual that is a Messianic Jew, understanding that Jesus is the Christ, um, that will have a lot of things that will literally just kind of like, wow, that is so amazing how God had developed these feast days to point to the Messiah, not only the first time, but the second time. Um, so those are some books uh, if you're interested. Uh, I do have copies of the notes if you would like some. Um, there's, I have one here left. And then I have some more, but they're not collated. And I apologize. Um, so I can give them to you if you want to just go through them. They're all here. You just have to kind of pick through them one at a time. So there's some. These are not revised, so they don't always link up with my notes. So I apologize, but for the most part, I would say 90% to 95% of them will link up with so my what, notes. What page are we on today then? That's a great question. Uh, it, should say, it should say interpretation of Revelation, at the, um, and it's Revelation 5. So at the top left, it should say Revelation 5, chapter 5. Um, mm -hmm. Usually I have the scripture reference in the top left where it says class and then scripture. Does yours say that? It just says class, revelation. Keep going. Then it'll, it says revelation one. That's revelation chapter one. Then if you keep going, it'll say revelation, should say revelation five. 
And at the top, it'll say interpretation of revelation. Oh, wait a minute now. It's not on that side. It's, it's under your name. Looks like. Are we doing the seals? Oh, here. Yes, we're going to begin okay. the seals. The second page. It should be, looks like this. And at the top, there's the four views, preterist, no. historicist. Uh -uh. Let me see yours, Dee Dee. There's, there's the seals, but it doesn't have that. I just licked my finger and touched your page. Sorry. Oh, oh shame on you. Shame. Burn it. Burn it. <laughs> wave it, wave it in yeah. there. Ask me if I'm worried. Maybe this didn't get all of them in there. What was that? Ask you. Yeah, ask me if I'm worried. Okay. Um, it didn't have it in there. I, I, I feel you. Um, well, there, these notes might not be in there, but the ones that you have are, we are touching on those today. Okay. So hang with me. Um, uh, no. She's easy. <laughs> She's easy. <laughs> what was the name of the author of that book that you said three views on Rapture? Three views would be, there's actually... The series, the series editor, it's not the author, is Stanley Gundry, G-U-N-D-R-Y. And there's another one, if you are on Kindle, um, there's another one, if you just put in Views of the Rapture, there is one out there, and I might be able to tell you because I actually pulled it up on my... Take your phone and take a picture of that, Yeah. of the book, that way you got it with you. Okay. They are out there, though. Um, I actually started. I had. I actually started reading it um, about a week ago, and it was very informative. Um, as far as it wasn't something that was trying to steer you towards a particular view, it just unfolded the various views. So uh, today, this is the section that we're going to go over, which unfortunately is not in your student notes. Um, and again. I can send you digitally the student notes if you're interested, so just email me and I'll send them. I did send that to somebody. I forget who it was, but yeah, I send sent it to me because I don't have an email. Okay, well, <laughs> I'll have to snail mail it to you if you... Okay. Somebody just said that they had asked you for a... Yes, and it seems like the name Peggy came up, if I'm not mistaken. But there are, uh, when you interpret Revelation, there are four views um, called the Preterist, the historicist, the futurist, and the idealist. These are four views that help you understand how people interpret Revelation, because not everybody interprets it the same. The preterist believes or claims that most events have already taken place. So we are living in what we call the age of the church, and all the events that you see in Revelation were things that took place in the past. The historicist describes this long chain of events from the island of Patmos, where John was, to the end of history. So they basically see it as this historical unfolding event that is continuing on today. Um, the futurist places the book primarily in the end times. So we could be in part of it, but we might not be. It just depends on where does it begin. And then the idealist views it as symbolic, as such timeless truths as the victory of good over evil. Um, so uh, most people, I would say a majority of people today are historicists. They believe that it's a long chain of events from Patmos to the end of history. A lot of things unfolding. Um, so as you go through this, again, I, I share these with you because I think it's important to understand, but you know, don't get, don't get too caught up. Um, I, I'll share this because it's true. Um, uh, the pastor before me at Colwood was um, a preterist, and he claimed that everything was done and that we were in this age of grace or age of the church. He was also an amillennialist, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, and so, you know, different people interpret the scriptures differently. Um, I, some people have said, well, Randy, what is your view? And I'd say, well, if you want to know my view, come and see me privately. Um, because I'll tell you, but I think the best route for the church to take is to help people understand there's many views and you need to understand them all. 
One of the things I couldn't stand in college was when a professor was constantly leaning towards a particular subject or view, his view, and he didn't give you what I would call a liberal education, meaning a broad education, and I couldn't stand that. Um, I had no problem with our, my professors, and even in seminary, I had no problem with them teaching things that were controversial. I want to know those, but don't teach me just those things. Uh, I got in a little bit of trouble with one of my seminary professors. Um, surprise. Uh, surprise, surprise. And uh, the large class, and he was, uh, his name was Dr. Dumkey, um, which... Donkey. Donkey, yeah, I know. There was, a, there was a lot of good jokes going around there. And uh, he was teaching one day on the subject of the atonement, which is the covering, the blood covering of a sin. And uh, so as he was sharing it, he was basically stating that this, there is the blood of Jesus Christ that covers, and it, it's, it's universal, and uh, that it covered everybody. And I looked at him one day, I just put my hand up and probably was thinking, yes, Carpenter, what do you want? And it's like, well, tell me the difference between universal atonement and universalism. And the whole class, you heard this kind of this moan. <laughs> and it's like, oh, showdown at the OK Corral. And basically, he, he began to like stutter. And I'm like, what you're teaching us is universalism, which is heresy. And I said, I need to know why are you teaching universal atonement which basically says that God's Christ's atonement covers everybody. And I believe that. I believe it's available for everybody, but not everybody is covered. So his teaching was that you are covered and then you choose to get out of it. And I'm more of uh, the atonement, I believe, is available and you choose to come into it. So I got myself in a little bit of trouble. That was my only B in seminary, unfortunately. And uh, I passed the class, yes, but uh, he, he, uh, he, he was the one professor where at the end of class, when you do his evaluation, that people stayed for a long, long time. And uh, I basically said, I still remember it, if I'm going to pay this much money for a seminary education, I want a broader understanding. I don't want somebody to just hammer this one particular or his particular views. And so anyway, yeah, I wasn't the most popular per individual. So these are the four views. Um, again, these are things I would encourage you to kind of look at, study, you know, okay, where might I fall? Uh, and honestly, I know people that are all over the map. Now, when we get into chapter four of the book of Revelation, this is a worship chapter or uh, chapters four and five are actually really about um, John being transported to heaven. And there's a particular passage in there where John, it says, is, is transported in the spirit to heaven. And, it's, and there's this voice that says, come up here. Now, I will tell you that there are some scholars, interpreters that believe that's the call of the church home, the rapture. Come up here. Um, that's a stretch, I think. I think it was just literally what it says. John, come here. Come up here. And he has this view of worship that's going on in heaven and he sees Jesus and he sees this description of this individual. So chapters four and five really are about worship of the creator. Um, and oops, that's looks far ahead. Um, and so as you read through it, understand that's where we're beginning. So uh, chapter six is where, as they say, all hell breaks loose, as you might think. Um, but chapters four and five, John is getting this vision of Jesus Christ and of heaven and all these things that are unfolding. Um, and so that's important. Now, then we get into, as he's up there, or as he's in heaven, there's this thing called the seven-sealed scroll um, that is there, and there's this confusion in heaven. Um, because there's this scroll, and if you let me describe what the scroll is, and I want to make sure. The scroll represents what is called Christ's title deed. Um, it's the title deed to the earth and all its inhabitants. Now, let me give you an, an illustration that might help you understand why there, this is important. Um, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the serpent, in that particular moment, when Adam and Eve sinned, what took place was they handed to Satan the keys to creation or the keys to the earth. Um, he took them 
and sin entered into humanity, and he then became the prince of the power of the air. When Jesus died on the cross, um, he died innocently. He died sinlessly. So one of the most beautiful things, and again, to defend this scripturally is maybe a bit of a stretch, but I love the analogy because many believe that Jesus descended into the depths. Um, I believe Peter mentions that. He descended into the depths. And sometimes people will say, well, why did he go down there? Did he go down to take the, the inhabitants home? And I would say, no, I worked under a pastor that I, I thought gave a great illustration or great description. He said that when Jesus went into the depths, he said, basically pointed his finger and says, now you're condemned. So I have, I have fought the fight. I, have, I will resurrect and I will overcome death. Some believe that he went down, walked up to Satan and said, those are mine. Grab the keys. And he took the keys because then the keys are given to who? Do you remember? In Acts? Or no, in the book of John? Peter. He hands the keys to Peter. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Today, if you go into um, where the Pope is, into Italy, into Rome, there's the there's statue of Peter, and he's holding the keys of the church. So those are the keys to creation, that the church now has control of that. And it says even then that, um, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because we now become the aggressors. We become the offensive um, instead of walled up in our castles with our moats, we are called to be the church moving forward. If you notice that when the Bible talks about the full armor of God, you look at it, it only covers the front. And that's important. I asked my wife this. She uh, retired from the military. Actually, somebody else asked her this, but they said uh, her on her sleeve is the flag. And somebody approached her and said, the flag is pointed the wrong direction. And she said, no, it's not. And they said, well, yeah, it is because it's supposed to be pointed this way and because it's actually the stripes are going backwards. And she said, no, that's because the flag points that way because we're always moving forward and it, it flows that way. And I thought, wow, that's great. I love that illustration even for the church. So there's this scroll or this title deed. And uh, the, many believe that this scroll is uh, what they call a rolled up uh, sealed Roman will meaning that there's writing on both sides and it's rolled up like we used to roll paper. And what they would do is as they were rolling, they would drop like wax in it and then they'd roll over it and then drop some wax and roll over it. And they would do that all through this rolled up, what many considered a Roman will. So the scroll can only be opened by the right heir. Who can open the scroll? Well, then we see in Revelation 5, 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And John is seeing the same thing. And so the beauty of this passage is that then there's this description of John says, I see a lion, no, a lamb. You know, and you look at it, and he sees these two descriptions. Both are of Jesus Christ. I see a lion, no, I see a lamb, slain lamb that had marking, markings of blood on him. So who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, it's Jesus Christ. So then he grabs the scroll and then from there forward, chapter 6 forward, we begin to see him opening and popping these seals. Um, uh, some people, I've, I've, Hollywood always does a terrible job of describing these events, but a lot of them would, they would use them as individual envelopes that had a seal on them and, you know, snap them open. And it really, many believe that this is the, the scroll or the, the, the seal judgments that you'll notice. Um, too far. <laughs> so when we get into this section of, of the book of Revelation, um, how does God get his possession back? Jesus Christ, the sinless lamb of God, um, the ransom that was paid by Jesus Christ. Jesus was on the cross innocently. And I, I say innocently because you need to be forewarned. A lot of seminaries today will tell you or are preaching that Jesus Jesus became the Christ at his baptism. I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, he became the Christ when the Spirit of God descended on him. And there's many seminaries that teach that. He, he was just a normal man born of Joseph and Mary, but he became the Christ at his baptism. Problem with that. Because then he is no longer the sinless sacrifice on the cross, which then negates everything that moves forward from there, meaning this part. When John says, who can open the scrolls? There's only one person that can. 
That's Jesus because that had to be the sinless, uh, innocent lamb. Um, so then we get into this inheritance that we see in this section. There's the question is, will anyone else receive the inheritance? And why can't we receive an inheritance now? Well, yes, the church eventually will get this inheritance. That's why Satan hates the church. Because we're getting what he wants. And he's wanted it from the beginning. But eventually it's coming to us. Why? Because God made us in his image. And Satan hates that. Because he wanted to be made in the image of God. He wanted to ascend God's throne. So what he hates more than anything is the fact that we are going to get this inheritance. God's creation. His church. And uh, why can't we have it now? Well, because we're still under a curse, yeah. all of us. Um, we're born with a curse. We're born sinful. We're born sinners. Uh, you know, and, and I, I love sharing this. I remember one time I said that in a sermon years ago, and there was a young lady up here to my left that did this. The whole, I mean, just shook her head no. I mean, just adamant. She was trying to make a statement. We are not born sinners. We are, we are born innocent. And, we are born, and it's like, you might be born innocent, yes, but you're born with the capacity to sin. And if, if you don't believe that, you've never raised a two-year-old, is my, usually what I'll tell them. Uh, I, I had a pastor say one time, he said, if you don't believe in the depravity of man, you've never raised a two-year-old. So um, then in this section, and I'll get to the seals in just a moment, but we have these hymns that are saying, and we have uh, two hymns in particular that target the Lamb of God. And then there's a third hymn that's saying uh, that targets the Lamb and God. And that is all in chapter 5 as you read through it. So you'll notice that there is this, this rejoicing, this yes, you know. Because even the Bible says that even the rocks cry out for redemption. Mm -hmm. So they're waiting for the day in which God will say, enough is enough. And now I'm taking back what is mine. Um, so that's where we begin to see these hymns. And then we get into the seal judgments. And there, yes. Good question. Why, yesterday you said that... Angels spoke, glory to God. They spoke. They did not sing. And then all of a sudden, in why do you think that is? I think it's because they're singing now because they know it's done. Okay. The angels in heaven await. They know the day. Or not the day. They know the time is coming. They just don't know when. And so I think when all this stuff starts to unfold, all of a sudden you're going to see heaven singing. Because now they know that God is bringing I can, oh, I know. Rehearsal. What's that? We're still in rehearsal. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we haven't gotten quite there. The drummer's probably screwing everything up. So, probably. Um, so, let me go back. Here's some possible timeline of events that might help you un break down the book of Revelation. Now we're in the book on the page. Yes. Now we're where you are. Yeah. First three and a half years, potentially chapters six through nine. Events at the middle of the period, chapters 10 through 14. The last three and a half years, chapters 15 through 19. So maybe that kind of gives you an idea of when you're going through. Because the book of Revelation is, is confusing. A uh, pastor that I worked under taught this class, and, and he gave, gave a great description. Because you'll read through the book of Revelation, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoop, you turn, you change a channel. And it's on a totally different subject. And his way of saying it was... Um, Commercial break. And he did this commercial break, and then all of a sudden, you'll go through this other section, and then you come back to that previous subject. And it's like, okay, meanwhile, back on the ranch. This is what's going on. So that's why Revelation is so, and it helped me, um, because we read, you know, front to back, thinking everything is going to be chronological. The book of Revelation is not. It's, it's this section, and then, oop, we're going to take a break, talk about this, and then, oop, well, meanwhile, back at the ranch, let's go back here. It's kind of like those movies that are out now, like um, they go to this topic and then they go to another scene with somebody else that actually ties into this scene. And so it's a little confusing. This helps break it down maybe a little bit for you. Yeah. Um, kind of like the Bible. It's not in chronological order. No, no. <laughs> chronological order. Is it in chronological order? That is. That, uh, that probably. Be, but the most of them aren't. Yeah, it's. It helps people a lot of times. Well, I teach a lot of uh, grow groups, and one of the first things that I teach my groups is understand that the Bible is not chronological. It's broken into three sections. Mm -hmm. So you've got history, poetry, prophecy. There's also a chronological Bible. 
Yes. Yeah, you can get those. I have a men's group right now that we're, we're not meeting, we're on hiatus, but um, they are getting into the prophetic books of the Old Testament, and um, or they're past it, but when they were in the prophetic books, they would all of a sudden get to a, like a section that's like, wait a minute, this person was mentioned earlier. I don't remember. Yeah, it's like, oh, this person is mentioned back here in earlier in the historical books, but this is a prophetic book, but it's actually, if you took this book out, you could lay it here. And that's where a chronological Bible would help you understand where we're at. Um, let's talk about these riders, these horsemen of the apocalypse, as they call them. Um, there is, let me make sure I'm not get, jumping ahead here. There might be. First seal. First seal, sorry. Let's talk about the first seal. Chapter six. Yep. This is where all the fun starts to happen. There is, uh, again, there is this come and see, come up here that's given to John. And then there is this description of as we get into the seals, there's three interpretations of who this person is because the seals actually open up these riders. So that's the first one. You'll notice that there's a rider on a white horse. That's the first seal. So uh, Jesus takes the first one and he snaps it, opens it up. He reveals this section. Again, writing on both sides. But there is uh, different interpretations about who this rider on a white horse is. Um, there was a, uh, an author several years ago that wrote a book on the book of Revelation. This section is talking about Jesus. I'll just make that very clear. I'm sorry, not Jesus. This section is not talking about the Christ. It's talking about the Antichrist. However, this author said that this was the Christ because that was his way of, it, of saying that the tribulation of the church is going to happen at the beginning. I probably just confused you with all that. So I did. So this is one of the interpretations. This, some believe it's the Christ. It's not. This rider on a white horse. Some believe it's the Antichrist. I will tell you, yes, that's what it's. That's the person being described. Some people believe it's just a spirit of conquest. Um, but I would say, and again, I'm not trying to steer you in a wrong direction. This is not the Christ because of several things that you'll notice. Number one, um, he is. Uh, he rides out to conquer, and that's not what Jesus is going to come and do. He rides out. He also, the Bible says that he has a bow, but he's missing something. Anybody know? Arrows. He has a bow, but he has no arrows. So he's coming out to conquer, but he's also coming out to bring peace. This person here is going to be the individual that comes and probably is going to exist during the first three and a half years of the tribulation because the Antichrist is going to be the person that comes and brings what we call a false peace. He's going to bring, many believe he'll bring a, an agreement, a covenant between the Jews and the Arabs, which will incorporate the um, rebuilding of the temple. Um, the book I showed you, Ready to Rebuild, they actually showed some designs where they have the Arab mosque and the Jewish temple side by side. Uh, I, I, say, I say it to you because the person that can make that happen is going to be a world beater. If he can get the Arabs and the Jews to come together and build their temples on the same spot, he is going to be a world beater. And that's the Antichrist. So this person, this rider on a white horse, is going to take up probably the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. The Bible tells us in Daniel that after that three and a half year period, he's going to turn his back on his covenant with the Jews and he is going to go nuts. He is going to turn his back. He's going to set up um, himself as God or he's going to set up Satan as the God. And that is when things are going to go crazy. And that's when we get to the second seal, the rider on a red horse. The Bible says that this one will come out to make war. And interesting enough, if you know anything about what happens at that period of time, war breaks out. The Jews rebel, and the Antichrist goes out and basically tries to annihilate the Jews. And if the church is around, his attempt is to annihilate the church. Um, again, 
interpretation, wherever you're at. So this second seal is this person that goes out to make war. Um, and then as he's going, in fact, Matthew 24 talks about this same person. And if you go back to Matthew 24, you're going to notice a lot of similarities. And I'm going to give those to you in a minute because you can actually go back and forth between Revelation 6, Matthew 24, and all the events follow themselves. Each one is, is followed equally. Um, so that's why I always say that Jesus gave us Matthew 24 and 5 as a prelude to what was going to be given to John later on. I'll stop. Is there questions? So like I said, this is a lot of information um, in a short, per short period of time. Uh, yeah. Uh, is this all being recorded so you can go back and listen? Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, um, one thing I think that would help us is if the Antichrist is going to come back and um, try to get the Jews together with the Muslims and the temple and the mosque, that's something that should never go together. Right. Period. So that should be a telling because they're saying even Christians are going to be deceived yes. by this person. And I'm just saying, I think, you know, if you're seeing that, that should tell you something as a Christian. Something. Can you imagine? Uh, and again, I remember um, growing up. What was the name of the movie that was going all over? Um, it was on the end times. What is it? Matrix was that. No, it was a church movie, but it was on the it was on the end times and the rapture. And um, you know what I'm talking about, though. I sure do. It was made in like the 70s or the yes. 60s, and I remember seeing that movie. And you know the thing that got me? I mean, I wasn't very old, but was the pastor that was left behind. Yes. And I remember that. Like, can you imagine being the pa a pastor? So yeah, left behind and all these people coming up to him. It's like, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you share this with us? And I'm thinking, wow, I would be in hiding. Um, you know, just that would be awful to me. Um, Again, uh, this rider is, is war. This is what the Antichrist will eventually lead towards um, somewhere after or about that midpoint of the seven years. And he's going to make war against nations. He's going he's to go against the church if the church is here. He's going to go against the Jews and the Jews will rebel. Some believe that the Jews will go in hiding and um, some say that they'll go to Petra, which is in Jordan, if I'm not mistaken. But they'll go to this place to hide. Um, until the right time comes. So, we don't know. Um, that's in that Thief series in of books, even. That's, that's to Petra? Where, yeah, that's where they go. Thief in the Night. Thank you. Thief in the Night. That's it. What was the name of the movie? A Thief in the Night. Huh? A Thief in the Night. That's an old one. Yeah, good luck finding it. I don't really yeah. remember the movie, but I heard that it was a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying I'm old? Is that what that is? <laughs> well, my mom, let's see, how old is my mom? She is. Okay. I think she's 78. Oh my gosh, then I could be your mom. Yeah, she's, my dad's 70, almost 80, so. Well, my mother's 102. Still, still alive. Oh, yeah. Wow. Good for her, man. Less than an assisted living home in KC. I remember. Uh, who was the guy on NBC that was the weatherman? Willard? Oh, no, Scott. Yes, Willard Scott. He always had the things, the birthday things for the yes. people that turned 100. He, he interviewed one of them, and she said, I think Jesus forgot where I was. Uh, I'll never forget that. No, but somebody, we had a birthday party for my mom for her 100th birthday, and they somebody come up and ask her, oh, I think it was the pastor that asked her, you know, what was what was the... Uh, you know, I don't know what you call it. What was the main whatever of reaching this age and whatever? And she says you got to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I've always said that's. I mean, all the things in this world that you can put your trust in, the one that will re will remain is faith. That's right. And uh, that's what she told him. Because everything else is fleeting. All right. Um, the Antichrist will come to bring peace. That will be the first three and a half years. Um, some believe that when the Antichrist comes at the beginning, his, his, 
His vengeance will be at the beginning. It's not. It's going to be a false peace. Um, According to this, you got the writer out to make war, and then the second one was there was a time of false peace. False peace. Okay, that's a, it's got to go on that blank. And if I miss some others, let me know. I was trying to kind of tighten this whole thing up so we could get through it in five days. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, just stop me. I'll, I'll do the best I can to get you the notes. Um, this is where who he is. If you want to know a little bit about this period, the Jews, the enemies, um, Daniel mentions a lot about this time, um, specifically Matthew 24, Mark 13. You'll get a little bit of information on that. Now, how can we know who the Antichrist is? That's always a question that I get hit with. How will we know? Well, the Bible says you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Why do we want to teach people the scriptures in the church today? We want them to know the truth. You know, and more and more, obviously, you all have seen it. We, we don't teach much about the, the scriptures. You want to know why the King James Bible was written? Because... They want King James wanted the scriptures in the hands of the people because the church had too much power. And uh, so that's why the King James Bible was written, so people could understand the scriptures. Today, that is still true in the church, the importance of teaching the scriptures. Now, I've coached some pastors. Uh, I'm a big discipleship pastor. I really believe in leadership development, and I believe that pastors need to spend time developing people within their church for leadership, um, equipping them for leadership. I've always said this, when I, even when I came to Colwood, first thing I did, the first year that I was there, I was doing this every Sunday, just putting my crosshairs on certain people. And I would get to know them and I would like, Ooh, that person, I want this one, I want that one, I want that one. These are people that I, I sensed that the Lord could use as leadership in the church. Now, I will say this in defense of pastors. Pastors can't do that to everybody. So, but if pastors are spending their time developing leaders, it's the difference between the quick nickel and the slow dime, is what I always say. If pastors spend time discipling, it's going to be the slow dime, but eventually you're going to have people that will rise up within your church. Um, I think that's part of the reason we don't see more men actively in leadership in the church today. If you can get one or two that you could disciple, right? then they can go on. Yep. Warren Phillips, Warren Phillips gave a, a statistical description of one pastor that led one person to Christ every day for 30 years versus one pastor that discipled four people every year for 30 years. And the statistical difference was in the millions and only in the thousands over here. So by discipling four, those four discipling four, those and on and on and on, it, it blossoms into millions. Um, Makes sense? Yes, I hope. Let me see where we're at. Third seal. Third seal. Rider on a black horse. This person is obviously going to um, bring famine, death. Um, there's a shortage of food. Prices go up. The government is forced to ration what is available. Ride, rides out to bring famine upon the world. Um, so it talks about to eat bread by weight. It's a Jewish phrase indicating that food is scarce. Leviticus 26. Um, the scales are symbolic of trade and commerce that's going in. So there's going to come a day when all of a sudden, and lo and behold, who would have thought back in March that we would be dealing with food shortages in our grocery stores? Never. What's that? Toilet paper. Toilet paper. Still to this day, I can't figure out the whole toilet paper I thing. That's me. I can't figure that out either. I mean, good grief. My wife tends to kind of gather a lot of stuff. Um, I, I don't call her a hoarder. I call her a collector. And uh, she had a lot of toilet paper. And she looked at me one day and she said, see? That's all she had to say. See? I told you. It's like, okay, I repent. This kind of, but this was a sign. And when the Bible talks about that there are going to be labor pains that are going to come prior to the coming of Christ, uh, I told my daughter, because when this whole COVID thing started, um, she was kind of going off the rails a little bit. And I said, Marley, I said, this is only the beginning. Yeah. This is just the tip of the iceberg. It's going to get worse. And boy, you talk about somebody like, I don't want to hear that. Right, yeah. so it's going to get, look at how one event has completely devastated the entire earth. Yeah. 
And so, yes, that is going to be an issue that's going to happen, and you're going to see people that are going to die from it. The fourth seal is a rider on a pale horse. Pale mean in the Greek is chloros or pale green. It's kind of a gross, pukey color. Um, so he's given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth, usually follows times of war. So obviously, one thing is we go back to the rider on a red horse bringing war. These other events are naturally unfolding from these events. Um, what was the wild whatever the Wild beasts. Oh, sorry. It talks about... Than I was right. <laughs> um, talks about Hades, that death takes the body while Hades takes the soul. Uh, we, we will uh, touch on that a little bit later, but I will say um, that because the Bible talks about death and Hades giving up the dead. Uh, people have asked that. Well, when, you, when an unbeliever dies, where do they go? And I would say they go to a place that is temporary, Hades. Um, it's a temporary place because they haven't been sentenced yet. So the day is coming when those in Hades will be sentenced. They'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and it says that they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a permanent place. Nobody is in hell today. It's empty. So it's a place that's permanent. Eventually, the false prophet and the Antichrist are the first to go in. Then Satan is destroyed. He's thrown in. Death and Hades gives up its dead. And they are in a permanent place. Cannot escape. Uh, even if the Greek writers think that there's a... Wasn't there a, there a Greek book that said there was a stairway to work your way out of hell? There's not. The um, Bible doesn't even suggest that. No way. What is Hades? Uh, or another word is Sheol, an abode of all the dead until the judgment, divided into two departments. That's according to Luke chapter 16, Paradise and Gehenna, or Hades. Um, people have asked me about that. You know, is that, does that continue to be a spot according to Luke 16? Is there still these two compartments, two places that are divided? And I'd say, well, I don't know. Because um, people always ask me, well, well, then where does my unbelieving relative go when they die? And it's like, do they go to this place that we see mentioned in Luke chapter 16? And it's like, well, I don't know. I do know the Bible says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, that he took captives in his train. Some believe that that's where he went and he took the captives of paradise and he took them to heaven. Um, I've not been to heaven, so I can't answer that. Uh, but it's it does make sense. Um so that's one of the things. What other passages are that describe these descriptive words? Hades, paradise, Sheol, Gehenna, hell. There's a whole bunch. So when you get into some of these, obviously hell is separate. It's a place separate. Hades, Sheol is a place separate. That is now a place that those awaiting sentencing go until that day comes. Then they will be judged. Any questions on that? That's a big one for some. What was it again uh, Hades, Hades parad some other names, paradise. Um, there's a lot of different words in the scriptures, and sometimes people will read those and they'll say, Randy, what is it? You know, and it's like, well, hell, you can put over here. The rest of them, um, paradise, put over there. In the middle, you've got Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, those scripturally will say those are the same places. I was just thinking with paradise, I was thinking of... Um, the three on the cross where Jesus said, today you will join me in yeah. paradise. I think we've all been of the mindset that that's heaven. Yes. Right. Yep. And it, that's why when, um, when that passage about Jesus taking captives in his train, that he took those captives of paradise and, or took paradise with him. I don't, with me. He but said, with me. So he's got to be there. He'll be there. Somewhere. Yes. And he's in heaven. So it would it would suggest that he either took the captives and that paradise is in heaven or because they are not, most would say that people that are believers that die, they have not yet received their glorified bodies. That day is coming. So they are still, I don't know. In transition. In transition, yeah. I hate to use that word, but <laughs> makes me feel like I'm in limbo or something. Yeah. So, yeah. so what you're saying, everybody that has passed on, are in this these transitional places? Those that are in those that died as unbelievers, Bible seems to suggest that they are in this place called Hades, and that is a place that is awaiting sentencing, which would be the final judgment, 
Because then it says that, remember it talks about um, that he divided the sheep from the goats. And then the goats, they will be thrown into everlasting punishment. That is when the death will give up its dead. Hades will give up its dead, judged, and then thrown into the lake of fire, permanent, done. Um, no yeah, escape. That's to be tough to be waiting there, Lord. Nothing you can do. Yeah. You know you're going down in there. There's nothing you can do to change it. Yeah. And I think, too, like, let's say the parents that has, you know, are, are you going to be able to see, you know, loved ones? I don't know. I, I, that just boggles my mind, you know, a, a parent that might see their child over there knowing that their child is not going to spend eternity. That just, you know, floors me. Um, and so it makes you think more and more about the importance of um, sharing, you know, the importance of eternity. Um, and and I, sh I share with people all the time, people I've worked with in the secular world. And I said, you know what? We're made for eternity. You know, we're not here on this earth just for a short period of time. And I, I shared this at a funeral not long ago. I said, if God created us for a short period of time and then we're done, that's the, the those are the actions of a cruel God. I said, that is, I just don't see that. How could he give us this life here on earth to experience life and on this little blue planet, somebody asked me one time, do you think there's aliens? You know, and I said, well, no, I don't. How can you not think there's aliens? I just don't. And, and they said, well, do you think there's other planets out there, other Earths? No, I don't. Well, how can you not think that there's other Earths out there? And I said, well, maybe because I think God's created this massive, expansive universe, huge universe to show and reflect his greatness. Does it? And then... In this little blue ball in the middle of this universe, well, then most people would say that's a waste of space. <laughs> I'd say God's not limited by time nor space. So is the fact that he made me almost six foot tall versus five foot tall, does that mean God made a mistake? No. It means that God created this planet, the only planet that we know exists where life is sustained. How many have looked at, like, if they said the earth went off its axis like two degrees, what would happen to us? Just yeah, it's just amazing. And how is it possible that it could be perfectly put in a place that revolves around the sun and that it sustains life? So if there's a planet that sustains life, there has to be a creator that sustains life and gives life. And if there's a sustainer that gives life, that means he loves us. He loves his creation. And so all of a sudden, where's that point? Right back to the scriptures. So that's what I usually tell people. And when I bring that up, and I don't, I don't get into the whole Jesus argument, I just go back to our God made us for eternity. And then I slowly work towards Jesus Christ because I just, I just love that story. Um, good questions. Any others? Okay. Here are the things that, uh, as we look at the scriptures that are going to be, what, do we, uh, what we will see out of the tribulation period, um, there are six things. One of them has not happened yet. Finished transgression. Where's that in here? Uh, it might not be in yours. So if not, it's just, you can write it down. Okay. Um, finished transgression, put an end to sins. And this is kind of the layout in the scriptures as it's given. Atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision, anoint the most holy. Anointing the most holy has not happened yet. That day is coming. So all of these things have unfolded except for that final one. And that is where we begin to see Jesus. Um, what's the right word I want to say? Um, Jesus conquers, Jesus wins, basically. He will be anointed as the most holy. Whoa, whoa, go back. <laughs> Sorry. Can I ask a question about that? Yep. Can't write so fast. when you say that the only one that's left is the last one, then they know it's the most holy. Can you expand on that a little? Because I still see a lot of sin. So why is putting that into sin, why is that done? The This one here? It's not, not, not putting an end to it. He put an end to the, um, I got to think of the right word. He put an end to the, man, I'm just coming up blank today. That's the, the power, maybe, it's the consequence of sin. Um, so as those things were unfolded, it doesn't mean that we're sinless. 
but he put an end to the consequence and the power of sin through Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's how that is uh, taken, atoning for wickedness. Um, and then all those things are continuing, um, but except for the anoint the most holy when Jesus will be crowned king of kings, lord of lords. And uh, yes. I was going to say, Jesus come in and died for our sins. Before he did, we had all of those five. When he came back and atoned for our sins, died, rose from the dead, and ascended, that took away all of that stuff there. In other words, we can pray and atone now for our sins and repent for our sins. Whereas before, we, don't have to, we, we had to go sacrifice and do all the other stuff we had to do. He took that. Away. He took those five away by coming to this earth. I don't know if I explained that. No, you did good. And actually, you reminded me of, again, um, this book. If you really are interested in Old Testament, um, I really recommend it. I, lo I love the feast days. I actually preached on them, and then I had a class um, in seminary. Um, the professor only required one project, the whole class, one project. And he said, you have to write a 70 to 80 page paper. And uh, so I thought, okay. I could do that. So I did one on the feast days. I don't know how long it was. It was 75 to 80 pages. And, um, and so when I got it back, I was leafing through it like I'm waiting for all these red marks. And I didn't have anything. Not a thing. Got to the end of yeah, Well, that's what I, many people wonder if he does. He just wants to see that if he did the project. But I think he, I think he scans it. But. What's the title on those, that screen? What is the head of that screen? The, that's the, as it lays out, go to Daniel 9.24. And this is what Daniel 9.24 lays out that will take place when we get into that day and age in which Jesus will finish these things, finish transgression all the way to anoint the most holy. So that's how Daniel sees this coming Messiah and the things that he will do. Thank you. You're welcome. Much time do I have? Fifteen minutes. <laughs> Plenty of time. All right. Uh, let's see where that puts me. What is the purpose behind the seven years? Um, this may not be in your text, and again, it's really just God's wrath must fall. Um, seven being obviously the number of God and its completeness and perfection, and God's wrath must fall. And we see that in Revelation six, Revelation eleven, um, in Revelation six sixteen. Uh, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Um, so that that seems so powerful. Can you just imagine? Uh, Revelation eleven eighteen. the nations were angry and your wrath has come. Now, Revelation 11, 18. Um, one of the things that people, obviously people have a difficult time associating God with wrath. They just... They don't want that. They want the lovey-dovey, cuddly God. What's that? Santa Claus. Santa Claus God. Yeah. And that, that unfortunately, is just not going to happen just because we have sin in our lives and sin has to be atoned for. People still have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. But really, this is what the purpose of the seven years is, that God's wrath has to fall. The other thing is that Israel must be restored. Um, so what has happened, or what has to happen before the final seven years can begin? Two things. Israel has to regain the promised land. That was 1948. And then Israel must regain control of Jerusalem. That was 1967. So those things have already taken place. Daniel talked about those things. And so we see them already in place. So now everything begins to unfold. Um, if you've never read anything on, uh, there's a book called O Jerusalem uh, that talks about 1948. Fascinating historical book. Um, you probably will have to read it and then go back and read a chapter again. It's, just, it's a pretty thick book, but it goes through all the things that took place. One of the things I read, and actually there was a documentary that I watched on the, the 1948 um, battles. Uh, and I wish I could tell you where it was, when it happened, but it was so amazing because there were a group of Jewish soldiers ready to go across this desert plain, but they knew this desert plain was filled with mines, but they didn't know where they were, but they had to get through it. And they said, and then a documentary talked about it as well. They said all of a sudden this windstorm came up 
and it blew all the sand away and revealed all the mines. And these guys were able to walk through this whole area and not step on any mines. And there is a, there's a documentary out there that talks about all of the strange, they, some would say it has to be supernatural things that has happened to get, the, to get the Jews back into Jerusalem, back into the promised land that they had to deal with. Um, so if you ever watch those, I would encourage you. Um, I watch them all the time if I can find them, just because I, I love that stuff. Um, good stuff. Um, the fifth seal. This is the martyrs. Um, we see the souls of the martyrs, which indicates that their lives were given sacrificially to the glory of God. Are these, um, who are these people? Well, what have, we don't have five and six. Just don't you have it in there? Huh? Just have to take, take notes. Sorry. I'm still working on that student, student guide, so uh, I'll well, go slow. Um, Got to go change pages here. <laughs> <laughs> these are individuals that were given sacrificially to the glory of God. Who are these people? Well, some believe that they're people that died for the cause of Christ throughout Scripture, and others believe that they are people that died for Christ during the tribulation period. We don't know. Um, again, it's good to know that there's people that have said, this is who it could be, this is who it could be. Um, do we know for sure? No, we don't. But these are the great things about it as far as the who these souls are. If you need to go back, yeah. let me know. Let me go back. Indicates, indicates what? Okay. Matthew 10 talks a little bit. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry. Oops. Uh, do not worry um, what you say, what how, what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Question is, is who is he speaking to? Well, the reality is he could be speaking to everybody. You know, it could be, could be us. It could be the church. You know, um, you, I mean, it's just, it's, if you've ever had a situation, even in your own family, where somebody came to faith and they were, shoved out or excluded from the family, that's going to be a commonplace thing. Um, but in this situation, it's talking about those that are not just martyrs for their faith, but are individuals that will um, be persecuted for their faith. And honestly, I, I again, what did I say yesterday? Hope for the best, be prepared for the worst. Um, you know, and as believers, we really need to be prepared for the worst, that we might have to go through some of that period. Um, hopefully we don't. But if we do, you know, I really believe this. Um, like I said, when this whole coronavirus thing started, I shared with a group of pastors, we were made for this. And I said, we have to rise up and we have to be the church. We can't retreat. We have to rise up. We have to be the church. We have to be who Christ has called us to be in our communities. And that might mean that we're going to get persecuted. And it might mean the church goes underground. I mean, think about that. Uh, I, and when I was in grad school, I remember watching a movie. It was a short clip of uh, a group of Asian individuals that were in this. They were in this room that was like a sheltered. They had like metal um, around the room, so it was it was outdoors. There's no roof on it, but it was outside in the street. But nobody could see them inside. And they basically started singing a song. The the girl that was leading them said, "Let's sing." I don't know what it was. Amazing Grace. And so you know what they did? They couldn't sing out loud, so they mouthed the words silently. And I'm sitting there watching this thinking, this could be the church where we are like in the midst of our enemies and we're still singing, but we have to sing silently so that we don't bring anybody any alarm in. Can you imagine having to sing quietly? You think, you think singing without instruments is bad. Um, this would be... I know. 
So it just the voice, yeah. Yeah, it just it was so amazing to see that for me. Like Oh, let me see. These people will later be with Christ during the thousand year reign. Um, we'll get to that um, later on this week when we begin to talk about the, the millennium period um, and what that means. And there are different different versions. The sixth seal. Is that in your text? Okay. All right. Heavenly and earthly catastrophes. You went too fast on the other ones. Did I? I can go back. Well, you can get the recording. Yes. I can. Characteristics of the sixth seal. Um, the sun becomes black. Who knows why? I put some of these things in here. Maybe due to earthquakes, gases. You know, there are people that like to have these, these physical descriptions of why these things are happening. I don't know. But it could be. The moon will be blood red, probably due to the gases released by the earthquakes. I don't know. Um, stars will fall to earth. Might mean an asteroid storm. Uh, the sky will recede like a scroll. I have no idea what that is talking about. And, you know, can't wait to sit in the bleachers and watch, hopefully, but I have no idea. Um, mountain and island, they'll be removed from its place. Again, probably due to earthquakes. Uh, if you ever done any study on... Um, Noah and the flood and what many believe today to be the effects of that catastrophic event, this doesn't, this makes sense. Um, when God, you know, destroyed the earth with a flood, the, it wasn't just this rainstorm like we get a flood around here or even like they got over towards Midland. It was catastrophic events that took place under the ground. And so I, I, I like to do a little study on that as well. I'm looking at that and it says heavenly. The heavenly part is that just the sun, the moon. Heavenly, yeah, the stars, not not heaven place. Heavenly meaning the the stars. Yes. Um, so there'll be a lot. There'll just be catastrophes. Do you and think about this? There still will be people during this time that will that will scream and vent their wrath at God, their hatred. Um, as I sit here, it's like. They don't believe in God, but they blame God for everything. Yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. Yeah. Do you know, did you realize that even now, I've noticed different times on, like, the news thing, when they give the weather report, there'll be something about a certain kind of sun or something about a certain kind of moon. This yep. is Blood red moon. and Yeah, a blue moon or yep. green moon or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, Okay, where are they getting signs all that the information from? Watch yeah. for the signs in the sky. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Oh, let me see where that puts me. Seventh seal. All right. Here's the beauty of these seven, seven, seven. Um, first, what does it mean to be sealed? Well, seals indicate ownership and protection. God's people are sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning that when a person comes to faith, they are sealed in a, in a best case scenario. I don't want to get into, you know, was their salvation, was their altar call experience real or fake? I, you know, I'm not, I really want to, I want to believe, honestly, um, that when a person comes to faith, there is a seal there. I want to believe that God puts something in there that even though that person didn't live like they should. And this is me speaking. I really, really hope that God puts some little spot of a seal in their life that allows that person to squeak through the doors of heaven and get in. I'm, that's my prayer. Um, you know, I know people. I've had people that I've led to Jesus Christ that have walked away from their relationship to Christ or have not lived for him. And, you know, my prayer is, Lord, I pray that somehow you are so full of grace that you can let that person squeak in. That's like last night when Joel was talking about the when he asked us to come for the prodigal deal. Yeah. Yep. Got some that have been raised. You know that they you saw them take the commitment. Yep. But yet they're not. I know I have two sons. 
I'll, I'll close with this. Um, years ago, when Promise Keepers was really kind of flourishing, oh, yeah. um, I, we took a group of guys um, to Joe Louis Arena. And one of the guys uh, was a guy that I had been working with. His marriage was falling apart. His life, everything was just kind of falling apart. And I took him, and he was sitting to my left. And Franklin Graham spoke that evening. It was Friday night, which is a big night at Promise Keepers. That's kind of the, that's the climax, I guess, of the whole weekend. And Franklin Graham got up there and preached. And I sat there, and it's like, that was a dud. I, I literally sat there. And it's like, Franklin Graham, first night. And I'm like, that was a dud. And then he did an altar call. And the guy next to me was on his feet and gone. And you talk about a pastor that had to repent. And it's like, I'm sitting here listening to this guy thinking that was a dud. And yet it, and the, the aisles were filled with men that were going to the altar that wanted to you know, either recommit or give their lives to Jesus Christ. And it's like how the spirit works in a man's words are so powerful when the man is put behind the cross. And so, yeah, I had to do a lot of repenting that night. Um, where that guy is today, I don't know. Uh, I wish I did know, but my prayer is that God has marked him to such a way, in such a way that his faith roots will continue to be watered. That's my prayer, is that the Lord will continue to water the roots of their faith, where at sometimes, even though those roots have kind of dwindled, that something will happen that will bring them back uh, to Christ. So, um, make sure I... I'll show you where we leave off. Okay, we're going to talk about the rapture tomorrow a little bit more, um, the timetable of it. Um, again, I will try to um, try to figure out my the student notes a little bit, and if I'm missing some pages, I'll get them to you. Yes. Is, is there a seventh seal or not? Yes. There is. There's a seventh seal, um, but the seventh seal is con it contains seven trumpets. So we've got this, when I mentioned 777, um, in the seventh seal is seven trumpets. In the seventh trumpets is seven bowls. So we'll... We the seven one, it was five and six that was missing. Yeah, and so there is a seventh, and we'll, we'll be talking about that because the seven trumpets are actually announcements. When you talk about a trumpet, you're announcing something. So there's announcements of God's um, wrath, but it's only his partial wrath. Because then the bowls, those, those are things you pour out. So those are complete judgment. Um, we'll talk about those two as we kind of move forward. Okay. Yeah, I know. Wow. Um, I feel like you've been overwhelmed. I know. I know, yeah. But I'm good deal. Uh, did we want to pray or did, what did you want to do, Kendall? Okay.